0: Well, it was the year 536 B.C. The book of Lamentations is a, a dirge mourning the destruction of Jerusalem which had just been raised to the ground by, by the king of Babylon. In that passage that, that Bruce just read uh, for us in Lamentations 3, I, I, I think you can hear that anguish of the prophet Jeremiah. Bitterness, cowering, wormwood. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Last week we listened to the words of some of the prophets, some of the sermons that they preached before the, and after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. It was over, over the next century and a half that prophets like Zephaniah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're, they're going to warn the southern kingdom of Judah of a similar doom. And, and then 136 years after the fall of Samaria, the city of Jerusalem also became a, a desolation. And that's the context that Jeremiah wrote those words in which he grieved over the jewel of the Holy Land, the the beautiful city. Uh, This morning, I'd like us to review our our key words. We're going to go through our key phrases and key words that we've been learning as we've gone through the story of of Scripture, as we've gone through um, this series. And and then we're going to fly over those 136 years. My goal today is for us to just have some stopping points. We're going to cruise through all 136 years from the fall of Samaria to the fall of Jerusalem, and, and we're going to stop with, with each of the kings and, and just see a few moments. And as we survey that period, I'd like us to consider some of the important lessons that we can learn from each one of these kings. And then we'll we'll close our time back in Lamentations chapter 3. So for today's review, uh, if you're here for the first time and you're joining us in the middle of our, our series, The Story... Uh, We've been learning some key words, and our objective is, as we go through the Old Testament, and in a few weeks we're going to start into the New Testament, in 31 weeks we're going through the entire Bible, and our goal is to to get an overview of of how the Scripture is put together, how the story, the central core story that that you find from Genesis to Revelation, uh, how that, that is put together and everything is built around that. And so we've been learning some key words to kind of help us with this. And our first eight keywords come from volume one that covers the five books of Moses. We're just going to plow right into it with no hints, okay? So you all ready? And so we have the first eight. We have creation, fall, Babel, patriarchs, Moses, and wandering. Good. And then in volume two, we have three groups of rulers that we looked at. And those were Joshua, Judges, and three kings. Finally, in Volume 3 that we've split up in our series, we've learned a couple key phrases so far, and we have the divided kingdom, and then 19 and 20. And what's 19 and 20 represent? The kings. Yeah, we had 19 kings in the north, and all of them were evil in the sight of the Lord. Bad, evil. Yeah, I heard a few things. That that all works. And then 20 kings in the south after Solomon that um, uh, were all of them good, were all of them bad yeah what's that five were good yeah five it says specifically that they did what was right in the sight of the lord we're gonna look at two of those guys today that brings us to one new keyword for us to remember uh, and that's exile uh, this is the end of the period of the kings and the people went into exile at this point most of the written prophets of course moses was a prophet jesus was a prophet but most of the written prophets that we have in the bible were all all fit into those last three key words Uh, From the death of Solomon to the fall of Jerusalem, we have just under 350 years. Uh, The kingdom splits in two. Israel is ruled by 19 evil kings. Judah is ruled by 20, only five of whom the Lord says that they did what was right in his sight. And then the people were taken into several decades of exile where they lived outside of the country. But let's back up and let's walk through the reign of those last seven kings of Jerusalem. And um, before we do so, uh, let's take some time and ask for God's blessing on our time in the Word. Let's pray together. Lord God, again we we come before you and we ask that you would be the one that would teach us. We pray that as we as we fly through these last few chapters of Second Chronicles, that uh, as we make some stops along the way, I, I pray that you would use your Word to teach us, that you would use your Word to change us, that you would use our Word, that you would use your Word to transform us to be more like jesus christ might we hear what you have to say might we listen specifically to what the spirit is doing in our lives and and see sin that needs to change to see areas where we need to follow you and and we're not and unlike some of those that just ignored it might we be those who repent that turn the other direction might we be those who listen to your spirit might we be those that honor you with our lives and do what is right in your sight. So glorify yourself as we turn our attention to what you say in the Scripture this morning. Amen. You know, I, um, I, I love our country. Uh, there are many wonderful and beautiful places around the world. I've been to a few of them that, that are, were just marvelous. But we live in a place uh, of incredible privilege and incredible, incredible freedom. Our fathers, going back many generations, made incredible sacrifices. They worked hard uh, so that we can enjoy many of the benefits and the freedoms that we do today. Uh, Many godly choices were made at various times that that God blessed, whether those individuals were were believers in Jesus Christ or they just believed in God generally or they just were following the principles that are laid out in God's word. And God blessed much of that. However, I I believe that, um, that much of this is coming to an end. And that the, the years ahead of this great nation are far fewer than those that are behind us. And I believe this for two reasons. First, I, I believe that the Lord is coming back again soon. Uh, we are looking forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and his return for his people. And uh, while we're not able to know the specifics of how God will fulfill prophecy, uh, it's noteworthy that, that America just doesn't seem to play a significant role in the things that take place in the end uh, they're just there's just isn't any clear mention of the united states in biblical prophecy or anything that looks like it and so as the time comes to the end and our lord returns it makes me wonder where america is during that time but secondly i, I also believe that our nation has tried god's patience our our god our our, our people have continually chosen evil we, we've told god to get out and and a time is coming for god's reckoning i I do believe that the world is becoming also less and less tolerant to Christianity, to the things that we believe, and the things that we say, and the things that we teach, and, and that those who are followers of Jesus Christ that that we can expect increasing persecution. I, I think in our lifetime, and in, in your children's lifetime, and your grandchildren's lifetimes, we, we're going to see more persecution because the world hates us, just like Jesus said they would. Right? So this isn't something new. This isn't something that's changed, and all of a sudden. Um, you know, all of a sudden, people don't like Christians. Uh, Jesus promised that that's what was going to take place. We live in a world, though, that's more and more antagonistic towards the gospel and those who follow it. The days of religious freedom are beginning to wane. Now, I, I, I'm not saying these things, and, and I'm not predicting some imminent disaster, okay, but, uh, I, and again, I'm not making any specific prediction here. Uh, well, what I'm really saying is that we are called to live in a manner in which we remember that our eternal kingdom is the kingdom of our Lord. And and whether the Lord would use our country for another thousand years or for another ten, um, we serve a God who who is building a kingdom for us. He's gone away to prepare a place for us, and and that is where our true allegiance lies. As much as I love my country, as much as I pray for my country, as much as I, 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 I pray that the Lord would be merciful to us, And and as much as I cherish what our country has represented and continues to represent, we all have to remember that our first allegiance is to our king, the God-man named Jesus. And I bring all this up because we've come to a point in our series where the nation of Judah is in its final years. The the nation of Judah um, had seen the the final years of, of Israel, and after the fall of Samaria... There were many people in the southern kingdom that said the southern kingdom is never gonna fall Jerusalem will never fall like Samaria did and and the reason why is we have the temple the ark is there God resides there it's his throne room and in fact Jeremiah has a sermon where he says you say the temple the temple the temple and he says it's gonna be torn down and and so in those last years Uh, The prophets preached a different tune and the people didn't want to listen. And we see that God gave Jerusalem 136 more years and and he warned them over and over again to turn from their sin. And so I'd like to lead you through these final generations and consider some of the important lessons from the text of Scripture that Christians need to remember in a time where our persecution will increase, where people are going to wander away from him and Nations rise and nations fall, and God raises up kings and he brings kings down. What does it look like when things change around us specifically? And let's look at some of the examples of some of those that we're living during this time and the lessons that we can learn, no matter how long the Lord tarries or how patient he remains in withholding his judgment. Our first king is, is Hezekiah. Uh, if you want to turn to Second Chronicles, we're going to be in the last few chapters of the book. Our first lesson comes from the life of one of Judah's greatest and most godly kings, Hezekiah. Hezekiah teaches us the importance of humility. There's a couple instances we're going to focus in on and, and, and narrow in on. There's a lot, of, a lot of stories about Hezekiah that you can read. If you turn to Second Chronicles, you can read his entire story in chapters 29 through 32. You can also jump over to 2 Kings where a lot more details will be shared about some of the events that took place there. Uh, in fact, you can go to the prophet Isaiah, and, and there are several passages that specifically address what happened with Hezekiah. But we're just going to take a couple snapshots from his reign. After Samaria fell, which would have been during his, his reign um, in the south, it fell in the north, king of Assyria comes back, and he brings his armies. Many of you know the story of, of the tens of thousands of soldiers and, 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 and horses and chariots that gathered outside of Jerusalem. And they threatened the city. And they spoke horrible things. In fact, it was so bad. They said, Please speak to us in Aramaic so that we can understand you, but the people around us won't understand it. And they said, No, we're going to speak in your language because we want everybody to hear what we say about you and about your God. And the Assyrian leaders spoke horrible threats and they spoke many blasphemies against Yahweh, the God of Judah. Uh, and from all practical uh, human perspective, the, the situation was hopeless. On the lower story, from man's perspective, Hezekiah and Jerusalem didn't didn't stand a chance. There was nothing that they could do if it was dependent upon them. And over in Second Kings chapter nineteen, you can read the full story of Hezekiah going to the temple and and how he humbles himself before the Lord. You can read about the miracle that takes place when the angel of the Lord comes that night and slaughters the armies of Assyria without Hezekiah lifting one sword. They just simply woke up in the morning and. God had already accomplished the victory for them. You can read the song of Isaiah uh, in Isaiah and, and 2 Kings and, and, and also in Chronicles here. But, but I'd like us to, us to observe just three verses as told from 2 Chronicles 32. The, the Assyrians had just shouted their threats. They just boasted against Israel's God. And they made their threats against Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. And, and here's the example that was set by this king. In verse 22, it summarizes it like this. It says, Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. And so he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. So Yahweh saved hezekiah and the inhabitants of jerusalem from the hand of sennacherib king of assyria And from the hand of all of his enemies and he provided for them on every side My friends we we live in treacherous times Uh, The world around us is changing Uh, It will continue to change and it will likely become more difficult for god's people uh, Before it gets any easier and your faith will be tested in various ways over this next decade Uh, again i don't offer some specific prediction other than what the scripture already tells us the scripture tells us that indeed all who desire to live godly in christ jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived that's what paul told timothy in second timothy chapter three so what do god's people do what do you and I do when, when things are changing around you, when people change their perspective towards what you believe and whether you can even speak or not? The first lesson that we learn from this last, one of these last kings of Judah is that the Lord treasures humility. The Lord treasures humility. Hezekiah and Isaiah, they prayed, and, and, and we see that God answered their prayer. They, they didn't look for strength in their numbers. They didn't look for strength in their chariots. They, they looked to the one person that could offer a solution to the problem that they faced. And they bowed themselves before him. And humility is basically, it's the opposite of pride, which is also addressed a lot in this passage, whether it's from the perspective of the king of Assyria or some of Hezekiah's own struggles. But it's the opposite of pride, and humility is recognizing God's proper place in your life and then serving him. One of the first places this happens is when we get on our knees and we pray to the God of heaven to tell you how important it is that we would be before the throne of God in our lives, as we face the difficulties that we do, as you face challenges at work and challenges at school, challenges in your, your family, let's be people that would go to our God in prayer. But there's a second instance where we learn about Hezekiah's humility. It comes in the very next paragraph. And so starting in verse 24, it says that in those days Hezekiah became sick, and he was at the point of death, and he prayed to Yahweh, and he answered him and gave him a sign second kings talks about how the shadow on the steps rather than going one direction it changed directions and the shadow went the other way god gave him a sign that that he would be healed but um he did not make return according to the benefit done to him for his heart was proud hezekiah therefore wrath came upon him and judah and jerusalem but hezekiah and and, and note hezekiah's response here hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the wrath of Yahweh did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Again, 2 Kings 20 provides some more details. God told Hezekiah that he was going to die. He had uh, apparently had some wounds that were growing on him, and, and uh, God says, you're going to die from, from, from this. And so he prays, and he asks, Lord, please prolong my life. And before Isaiah makes it outside the palace, God tells Isaiah to turn around, and he goes to Hezekiah, and he tells him, That he's going to give him another 15 years and after this hezekiah uh, we're told sinned against the lord but when god announced his judgment we're once again told that the king humbled the pride of his heart and just one of the observations that i'd like us to make as we as we work our way through this period these last days of judah we would be wise to learn hezekiah's lesson scripture tells us that god hates pride Hezekiah recognized his sin, he recognized his own pride, and we're told that once again he humbled himself before his God. And that needs to be our response. Whatever the sin is, maybe you're struggling with something over and over again, maybe there's something that you haven't addressed in your heart with the Lord, maybe you've never come to know Jesus Christ. Our response to him is like that tax collector that we read about in Luke today, that we would humble ourselves before him and and say, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner hezekiah's response that tax collector's response needs to be our response we we can't be so proud that we won't admit when we're wrong humility will lead lead us to be people who pray and humility will lead us to seeing us as we truly are and seeing god as he is our next lesson uh, also comes from hezekiah and the next two kings i'm just gonna make a couple observations before we move on to hezekiah's great-grandson josiah but Hezekiah was one of the most godly kings of Judah's history. There's so many things that happened during his reign. and These chapters are just amazing of, of how God used him in so many profound ways. He was one of the most godly kings in all of Judah's history. But the greatest tragedy of Hezekiah's reign is that his successor ended up being the most vile, the most wicked, the most ungodly king of all the kings of Judah. Just listen to the first seven verses of chapter 33 if you turn the page over. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made Ashtaroth, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of Yahweh, in which Yahweh said, "In Jerusalem shall my name be for- forever." And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of Yahweh. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil. In the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger, and the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God. And here's my observation. It's more of a question. Did Hezekiah teach his son to follow the Lord? Each individual has to make their own decisions, and so maybe he did. Maybe there was something going on in Hezekiah and Manasseh's relationship, and Manasseh... Uh, just didn't listen and he hardened his heart but did hezekiah teach his son about that humility that he learned did he teach him to read god's word it it seems that he did spend 11 years with manasseh the first 11 years of manasseh's reign was a co-regency in which hezekiah and manasseh ruled together and um, taught him during that period how to rule but hezekiah did hezekiah teach him what's most important to love the lord as god And I don't have the answer to it. I don't think Scripture tells us specifically. But it appears that Manasseh, whether he was taught or not, wasn't listening. And the end of chapter 33 tells us that his son Ammon followed in his father's footsteps and and worshipped the same gods. In fact, Manasseh named his own son after one of the Egyptian gods. But verses 10 to 13 is an amazing passage. It gives us this glimpse of, of Manasseh's life at the end. There's this glimpse of, of uh, some events that took place in the last few years of his reign. We're told that God sent prophets to warn Manasseh, but but he wouldn't listen. In fact, he he's probably the one that was responsible for the murder of Isaiah, the prophet himself, who had reigned for for or not reigned, but but prophesied for decades. A passage in Hebrews that talks about people being sawn in two. Probably was Isaiah, and it was probably Manasseh that had that happen. That's how wicked this man was, and so he wouldn't listen to God's messages. But God. God ended up bringing a foreign king who conquered Manasseh and then took him away in chains to Babylon. And in verse 12 of chapter 33, we read of, of God's great mercy. And I want you to notice these two verses and see what happens here. It says, when he was in distress, this is Manasseh, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of Yahweh, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and god was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to jerusalem into his kingdom then manasseh knew that yahweh was god what a beautiful account passage following talks about how he tried to reform things he tried to change people's heart he tried to teach what was right he tore down a lot of the altars and the idols but he couldn't change the heart of the people because he had led them for so long in doing what was evil But what incredible patience that our God showed to Manasseh, isn't it? 55 years of an evil reign. And when he calls out, God loved his prayer and took pleasure in restoring Manasseh to his former, former kingdom. Manasseh demonstrated true repentance, and God heard. God delivered. Repentance is the stage for God's marvelous grace where he saves lost sinners, Who come to him with the faith of a little child. Faith that says, God, I believe you. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe that what you say about my sin is true. I believe that what you say about salvation and how I come to you for mercy is true. The Apostle Paul stated it in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 to 17, so well. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, the, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You know, what a heartache for Manasseh, though. At the end of his life, look back and see what he wasted he repented and god showed mercy but there are some consequences that we never escape as a result of our sin but it's never too late for repentance it's never too late for god's grace he forgives and even in the midst of those consequences his grace comes shining through even in the midst of the consequences themselves god uses your obedience most often in ways that you will never see and never even know about never even imagine. Now after Manasseh, there was Ammon. He didn't reign very long and he was assassinated. Manasseh's son was 17 or 18 years old when his father changed and, and yet that didn't change Ammon's heart. He was just as wicked as his father had been. But remember that after Ammon comes Josiah. Manasseh's grandson was two or three years old. Uh, and I, I did the math here on this passage and, and how old the kings were and, and when all these things took place. When, when Manasseh repented and, and, and came back and, and as a changed man, uh, the future king of Judah was two or three years old and, and he maybe saw how his grandpa humbled himself before God or maybe all he remembered was the grandpa that, that walked in God's ways. He witnessed how grace comes shining through. He watched until he was six and then when he was eight years old He becomes a king of judah. Can you imagine? Eight years old. Do we have any eight-year-olds in here? They're all in the other room. Yeah, are you eight? Can you imagine being king when you're your age? Wow That'd be a, a lot to take wouldn't it? You'd have to rely on the lord for your strength and what you need to do Well he becomes king of judah and uh Again, my observation is more of a question. I, I don't know if Hezekiah neglected the most important lessons that his son needed to hear or, or if Manasseh was just simply hardened of heart. And I don't know how much Josiah remembered of his grandfather's last years, but I, I can't help but wonder how much of what Josiah witnessed in his grandfather made a, a lasting impact in his life that made some of the decisions that he did later on. What I do know is this. God has called each one of us as parents, as grandparents, as great-grandparents to shepherd the hearts of the next generation. It is our responsibility, your responsibility to shepherd the heart of your children, your grandchildren. There are too many wonderful Christian people that live beautiful lives of grace but who leave a legacy in which they fail to teach their children the way that they should go. Happens too often. We, we, we focus on everything that we're doing in church and all the ministry opportunities, and, and, and we don't focus on the, the, the first responsibility that God has put into our lives and, and holds us accountable for, and, and the next generation turns away because we didn't teach them. They, they make their own decisions. There are some, there are, there are some that, that wander away, and, and we pray for them, and But it's our responsibility to do everything that's within us to equip them, to teach them, to to shepherd their hearts. Let them know about God's amazing work that that God has done in your life and that he can do in their life as well if they will only repent and humble themselves before their God. Grandparents, uh, you have a a unique privilege in the place of, of, of the lives of your children's children. Spend time with them. Take every opportunity. Love them. Teach them. Teach them of God's grace. Teach them about the God-man Jesus Christ who died for their sins. Here's the instruction that we find from Moses who spoke several centuries before this. But back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this passage we call the Shema, which means "hear" to hear. It's a favorite passage among the Jews. Was in, in, in former days of Israel as well. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 said, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way, and when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. My, my friends, we have a responsibility to teach our children God's Word, to teach our children the things that God, that God teaches us in His Word. And, and what he's, what's pictured here is, is not this, this thing where you're walking down the road and you're, you're preaching a sermon to your children wherever they go. You know, Children, sit and listen it's an it's teaching them how to live out your christianity how to live out grace how to to understand these things how the things that are going on around them are, are talked about in god's word how god tells us that this is how we respond to the evil that's in our world this is how we respond to the sin in your life it, it, it involves when we're disciplining our children not just doing our duty but teaching them why it's important that we would walk in obedience May your children and their children's children have no excuses because you have loved the Lord your God and because you have done everything within your power to teach them God's word. I don't know what that looked like in the life of Hezekiah and Manasseh, but I can't help but wonder if maybe Josiah was impacted just a little bit by what he saw in his grandfather. Is that same principle that it was taught in Deuteronomy that, that we see throughout Scripture, but that so often the people of God have neglected that has led to such great destruction. Let us not be among them. In our next section, you know, if Manasseh taught us that it's never too late for repentance or to receive God's forgiveness, then Josiah's life, his grandson, Josiah's life teaches us the opposite of that. You are never too young to experience God's grace and to begin a life of choosing right. Look at chapter 34. Chapter 34 begins uh, by giving us an introduction to Manasseh's grandson, the boy king named Josiah. Again, he's eight years old. Listen to what God says about him. In chapter 34, verses one through seven, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of his high, of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that, that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the ashram and the carved and uh, of those excuse me in pieces the ashram and the carved and metal images and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests of their alt, uh, on their altars and cleansed Jerus, Judah and Jerusalem. Burning, burning their bones on the altars would kind of make make it hard to worship there in the future. So he's not just handling his generation, but he's he's looking beyond. Verse 6, it says, And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, that's, that was what was, used to be the northern kingdom of Israel, he went outside of his borders to the, to the nation of the northern kingdom, that was now vacant largely, as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around. He broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. And then he returned to Jerusalem. In other words, Josiah walked by faith and he sought to obey the Lord his God like no king had done before him. tells us that the Passover celebration, there hadn't been one like it since the days of Samuel before any of the kings. I I did some of the math again based on this passage and some of the dates that were given in some of the other parallel passages. And here's what I learned. Number one, it doesn't matter how young you are. he was eight years old when he became king he was 14 years old when he was the father of two talk about learning how to parent and under pressure right not only does it matter not matter how young you are but right actions also are determined by a right relationship we find that when he was 16 years old he began to seek the god of david at 16 years he was also the father of a third son by his second wife yikes Right actions also look beyond your circumstances because when he was 20 years old, he began to cleanse the whole land. Josiah sought the Lord as God and he did it with passion. He, he did it with vigor. He did it in a way that had never been seen in Judah before. Now, unfortunately, Josiah was killed in battle before he turned 40. His son Jehoahaz only reigned for three months, but he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then his brother another of josiah's sons ruled and also did what was evil but let's look briefly i i I want us to note chapter 36 so jump forward a couple chapters chapter 36 verses 9 through 10. after jehoiakim died uh, his his son josiah's grandson became king verse 9 it says jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned three months And 10 days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. Have you ever read that passage and wondered how in the world did he do evil in three months? Three months. And God assessed his reign and said he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord and made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Angie and I were talking about this passage earlier this week you know on the lord's story um think about what this king was facing put put yourself in Jehoi Jehoiakim sorry there's these days name, names why didn't, why didn't they you know just give him the same name as his dad or something right um Jehoiakim you know, put yourself in his shoes for just a moment when Josiah his grandfather was killed Jehoiakim was 7 he was alive when Pharaoh came into town and took his uncle away deposed his uncle and carried him off to to Egypt. He was alive when Nebuchadnezzar came the first time, and he hauled off a few of his his cousins. They may have been first, second, or third cousins. We're not sure how closely they were related, but they were probably part of the royal house. Uh, Four young men named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he takes them to Babylon. Soon after he turned 18, Nebuchadnezzar came back because Jehoiakim's father had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and we're not told exactly what happened, but if you put the events of Jeremiah together with Second Kings and Second Chronicles, uh, it appears that, that there was some sort of coup. Uh, his, his father may have been assassinated. Um, his body was over the wall or hauled out through the gates, and we're told that he was given the burial, burial of a donkey. He wasn't buried with all the other kings of Judah, but they put him on a, a cart, basically. And uh, the burial of a donkey meant that his body was carried away in a cart. Probably it was a demonstration to Babylon that the people that were inside the city, look, we, we took care of this guy. He rebelled, we will serve you now. And these were the circumstances in which Jehoiakim became king. Can you imagine becoming the king of a nation when you're 18 years old and, and that's the life that you've witnessed? And, and those circumstances which your father has just died under suspicious circumstances and, and that's the kind of pressure that you're under. but it seems that there was something he didn't do. God still evaluated his life, his reign of three months and ten days and said he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Jehoiakim didn't pray. Jehoiakim didn't humble himself before God like Hezekiah had done. He didn't pray for God's deliverance and help. He didn't repent of his sin like his grandfather Manasseh, great-grandfather. Great, great grandfather. Boy, I'm losing track now. He did not seek the God of David like his grandfather Josiah. Again, God assessed his reign, and he summed it up and said he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. After three months and ten days, Babylon returns. Nebuchadnezzar comes back, and he and he takes Hezekiah and the queen mother, and he hauls them off to Babylon with ten thousand Jews. We call it the captivity the exile what I want us to see here is that while we learn from Josiah it's never you, you're never too young to obey it's also important that we understand that, that you're never too young to, um, to be held accountable before God that God holds all of us to the same standard and just because I'm young or old have different weaknesses different strengths I don't get to make excuses and say, ah, you know, I I have an exception clause. I don't have to obey the Lord. I don't have to follow him. It was um, Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, that uh, he he didn't fare much better. We're also told that he was evil. Um, You put together the pieces, and you also could say he was spineless. Uh, He was more of a puppet than really a king. He allowed the persecution of Jeremiah the prophet. Uh, He allowed the, the murder of some of the other prophets. He's going to pre- pretend to, to care about what God would say. He's going to meet in, with Jeremiah in secret and say, please tell me what God says. And then he turns around and he'll do the opposite because he was afraid of the people around him. And he would cave under the pressure. And he continually disobeyed. And then in 586, Jerusalem fell once again. And Nebuchadnezzar comes back a third time. lays siege to the city. Zedekiah tries to escape even though God told him that he wasn't going to. And so his sons are murdered in front of his eyes, and then his eyes were plucked out, so the last thing he saw was his sons dying. And he was hauled off to, to Babylon as well. But here's the lesson that we can learn from godly Josiah and his ungodly sons and his ungodly grandson Jehoiakim. You see, the world teaches us that it's normal to rebel against God. That, that when you're in your youth, it's just a time that you go through. The world tells you that that's just part of growing up. Your your children are going to experience rebellion and and you can just expect this to happen because that's just the way it works. My friends, that is a lie from the pit of hell. You don't have to expect it. Teach your children what's right. Don't give them an opportunity to make excuses for their sin. Teaches us that it's normal. The world teaches us that we should expect it. Live it up. Just do it. Experience the pleasures of your life and your youth and, and while you have all of this freedom, the world tells us that you have an excuse to walk away from God and that you can fix it all later on. But the Lord teaches us something different. He teaches us through the lives and reigns of Josiah that you are never too young to experience God's grace and to begin a life of choosing right. Right whether you're 8 years old, 18 years old, or 80 years old. And you're never too young to know the joy of the Lord that comes from a life of following Jesus. So all of this brings us back to where we started in 586 B.C. The city is burning. Most of the remaining Jews have been slaughtered or hauled into captivity, and Jeremiah the prophet, we're told, is, is mourning the desolation of the city. He cried, I've forgotten what happiness is. But the prophet knew. The prophet understood that what was happening on the lower story, as he watched the smoke rise from the city, what was happening on the lower story was all a part of God's greater plan. In fact, God had promised that this would happen all the way back in Deuteronomy. Solomon had promised it and prophesied it in his prayer when he dedicated the temple that God would discipline his people if they walked away from him. And and you see, God had a greater plan than what was just happening in their lives that day. Indeed, the Lord had promised his discipline and his judgment. And so in the waning years before God's judgment, Jeremiah continued to trust his God. And you can just hear his anguish in that passage that Bruce read for us before the sermon. But you can also hear the hope that he turns his attention to the God who is faithful. We get that song, the hymn that we sing, "Great, Great is Thy Faithfulness, comes from that passage in Lamentations. Even as he mourned and pinned his tears into words, he was able to declare the message of hope that we found in verses 22 through 25. And I'd like to read that one more time before the praise team comes forward. The steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. Do you hear that promise? You remember that no matter how tough it gets, no matter how you're being persecuted, no matter what the struggles are, no matter how how you're trying to work things out with your children and teach them and and deal with life and everything that life's going to throw you, the steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In verse 24 he says, Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. That word portion, it's the word that's used throughout the Old Testament of um, sharing the spoils. You, um, you have a victory in, in battle. They, they split up the prize and I get my portion out of it. Um, it, it's, uh, it was what was used in dividing up the land. Each tribe got their portion. In fact, the Levites weren't given a portion like all of the other tribes. Their portion was to serve in the house of God. And so this word portion has this idea of of splitting up the wealth, splitting up the prize. And Jeremiah looks at all of life and everything that's happened and and he tells you as you look at your life and everything that's going on around you, what do I get out of this, right? What's my portion? When life falls apart and and, and everything seems to be destroyed and, and my latter years don't turn out exactly the way that I thought they would, and my health declines, and, and my children make mistakes. As people persecute, as people do things that are sin, as you're wronged, what is my portion? What do I get out of all this? And Jeremiah's response to all of that is, I'm going to hope in this faithful God. I'm going to put my hope in this one whose mercies are new every day, and my portion is Yahweh himself. He is my inheritance. Because the lower story is just what's happening in the here and now. God has a plan that encompasses it all. And in the end, He is doing what is for His glory and for our good. And so therefore, I will hope in Him. Yahweh is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul He seeks, who seeks Him. Father God, You are our portion. It is You that we trust in. It is in You that we hope. It is in Your Son, Jesus Christ, who is coming again and who's going to bring His people home, who is right now preparing a place for us. Lord, it is in You and Your Son that we put our hope. It is in Your Spirit who indwells us, who sanctifies us, who draws us near, that we hope father we are people who trust you we trust your mercies and so we humble ourselves before you we look at our sin and we repent of that we turn the other direction because you are our portion you are the one who gives us mercy And father as we live out our lives we pray that you help us to live in a way that we would not only live out these truths as we walk by faith But that we would also teach these things to our children and to our children's children might we pass on these truths and the way of the gospel to many generations ahead of us i pray that it would be said of us that we are people who taught our children about humility who taught our children about repentance who taught our children that it's never too young to obey and there's never an excuse to rebel because you are our portion you are the holy one and it is your mercies who are renewed which are renewed every morning great is your faithfulness